Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Well, let's bow our heads and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you for how you desire to speak to us. And Lord, we desire to be people who hear from you. Lord, give us soft hearts. Give us open hearts. Let us be shaped and formed into the people you want us to become. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. May we come to a greater appreciation of it today. And may we be moved and motivated by it in how we live in the world going from this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I remember the first time I got in an argument with my wife, Rosemary. It was before we were married. Uh, we, were, we used to live in Hungary. And so we were walking somewhere. You walk a lot in Hungary to get everywhere you need to go. We didn't have a car. So we were going somewhere, and we needed to walk there. And we got in an argument about which route we should take to get there. We both wanted to take a different route. We both thought that our route was better. My route was more efficient and more direct. But her route, well, her route for, for her credit, was in the shade. She's from Southern California. She loves to do everything in the shade, park in the shade, walk in the shade. Very important, apparently, for people from hot places. So my route, you know, I, we got in an argument. And I said, my route's better. And she said, no, my route's better. And then we were both convinced that we were right. And so I said, fine. You want to go that way? Go that way by yourself. So she did. And so we both walked to the same place, taking different routes. And, you know, every now and then, like, we could kind of see each other. And uh, the other thing I did is, as soon as we parted ways and she couldn't see me anymore, I kind of like run walked, you know, so that I could make sure that I beat her there. So she would know that I was right and my way was better. And so I did get there first because I kind of half walk, half ran. But when I arrived, here's the thing. I was covered in sweat because I've been like run walking in the sun. So I show up at this place. I'm there like two minutes before her and I'm really feeling proud of myself. Turns out nobody else was that impressed with the fact that I had won, especially not her. Everybody else, they didn't even know we were having a competition. Um, but there I am, just a sweaty guy, right? And then here's my, my, well, not even my wife at that time. And she was not very impressed with me uh, either that I had won. Let's just say it wasn't my best moment, okay? It was one of those times when you realize that it is possible to win and still be a loser. But that certainly wasn't the last time that Rosemary and I got in an argument. In fact, when we were engaged, we used to argue so much that our friends asked us, are you sure you guys want to get married? Because you argue a lot. And it was true. We did argue a lot. And even after we got married, we continued arguing a lot. We argued about everything. We argued about the right way to do dishes, the right order to cook and clean in the kitchen, the right way to cook certain meals, the right way to do this, the right way to do that, about everything. And we'd argue about everything, about all this stuff. Why? Because we both were convinced that we were right, and it, we considered it to be super important to prove to the other person that we were right and they were wrong. But do you know what I've learned from years of arguing with my wife? Here's what I've learned. I've learned that it is possible to be right about something. It's possible to win the argument and still be wrong about the way you handled the situation, and still be wrong about the way you treated the other person. See, what you come to realize is that sometimes there's something more important than just winning the argument. 
Sometimes there's something more important than just being right. And the question that Paul the Apostle is going to address here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is this. How should you, as a follower of Jesus, treat those with whom you disagree? Now let me just say, is that a relevant question for today? I think it is. Uh, I think that's a pretty relevant topic. Because right now, perhaps more than ever, everybody disagrees with somebody. Don't we? We all do, right? There's so much out there to disagree about. And people have strong opinions about the pandemic, about the regulations, about politics, about basically anything else. And everybody believes that they're right. Of course they believe they're right. If they thought they were wrong, they'd change their mind. Everybody believes they're right. And you know what? Maybe you are. But here's the question. Even if you are right, how should you, as a follower of Jesus, treat those with whom you disagree? That's an important question. You see, it's possible to be right in your beliefs and yet be wrong when it comes to your attitudes and your actions towards others if you are not motivated by love. As Christians, we care about truth. Absolutely. We're all about the truth. We're truth people. But in our pursuit of truth, we also don't want to just be right in our beliefs. We also want to be right in our attitudes and actions towards others because of how God has loved us and because of the calling that he has given us. So the title of today's message is Something More Important Than Being Right. Something More Important Than Being Right. And what we're going to see in this passage is here's our takeaway truth, our summary sentence, our outline for this message in one sentence. I encourage you, write it down in your notes, uh, wherever you take notes, take a picture with your phone, whatever you got to do to take this thought with you as you go today. But here's our sentence. Knowledge can be used to hurt or to help. And God's love for us compels us to a higher calling than just being right. So knowledge can be used to hurt or to help. And God's love for us compels us to a higher calling than just being right. Let's take that sentence. And let's break it down as we study this passage. So first of all, knowledge can be used to hurt or to help. Chapter 8 begins with these words. Now concerning food offered to idols. Now I wonder how many of you in this past week, you're going around, you're driving down the street, and you're thinking to yourself, hmm, what am I going to do about this food sacrifice to idols? You know, you're probably just racking your head about it. But probably none of you, right? It's not something that we deal with a lot here in Longmont, Colorado. But I will tell you this. Before you check out and say, oh, this is just some ancient stuff that doesn't really apply to me. They, that was a problem back then. Listen, there are going to be principles here in this section that are extremely relevant for all of us today. So tune in. In the ancient world, they didn't have supermarkets, okay? So people still wanted to buy and sell food. And one of the popular places where you could buy meat in an ancient city was at a pagan temple. Now, the reason for this was because people were constantly bringing animals to offer as sacrifices at the pagan temples. So you would bring a goat or a lamb to the temple of Zeus or Apollo or Athena or whatever Greek god you worshipped. And the way it worked in those days is that the meat from those animal sacrifices was divided into three portions. The first portion was burned on the altar as an act of worship to that god. The second portion was given to the worshiper to take home to eat with their family. But the third portion was given to the priest as a kind of payment or compensation for their service. Now, if you were a priest and you didn't want to eat that meat that you were given... You could sell it 
Now just imagine, if you're a priest, let's say every day you make, let's say, five sacrifices. Well, you've got five legs of lamb. Now your family can't eat five legs of lamb every single day. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to take some of that meat and you're going to sell it. And so it was in this way that pagan temples became places where people would go to buy meat. Many of the temples also developed restaurants where they would have tables and they'd have people cook the food and they would cook meals made from this meat that was offered in these pagan sacrifices. Now listen, the temples were not the only place where you could buy meat in an ancient city. There were also markets where you could buy meat. But the meat sold at the temples was generally of higher quality, right? Because people would want to offer their best animals as sacrifices. And it was generally cheaper. So better quality meat at a lower price. Who doesn't love a good deal? So it's very popular. Now this became an issue, though, amongst the early Christians, as you can imagine. Think about it. For the early Christians who came from a Jewish background, the idea of eating meat sacrificed to a pagan god was scandalous. Not only was it not kosher, but it had been, in their mind, it had been completely defiled by being sacrificed on a pagan altar. Now, on the other hand, those who had come to Christ from a pagan background, many of them also said, no way. I, I won't have anything to do with meat sacrificed at a pagan temple because I came out of paganism. Why would I want to go back into it, right? Paganism is evil. It's from the devil. Why would you want to support that by spending your money there? Not to mention, how could I, as a person who came out of paganism, enter back into a pagan temple, much less sit there and enjoy a meal? You know, and I've seen the same attitude with many Christians who have come out of some kind of lifestyle. And there are things associated with that lifestyle for them. Places, practices, types of things that, that are related to that old lifestyle they had before they came to faith in Jesus. And oftentimes, these people will react and say, I don't want anything to do with those places, with that music, with those things, because they were characteristic of my old lifestyle, my old life apart from Christ. And God saved me out of that. I don't want anything else to do with it ever again. We also hear people say the other argument. I don't want to support that place by spending my money there. Fair enough. This was the attitude of many of the early Christians when it came to buying meat or eating at the restaurants in the pagan temples. And yet, there were others amongst the early Christians who said, well, hang on a second. Maybe it is okay to eat the food that comes from the pagan temples. After all, we know that there is only one true God. Those other gods, Zeus, Apollo, Athena, whoever, they don't actually exist. They're just made up. They don't exist. And if they don't exist, then they can't hurt us. They can't defile us. And by the way, it's not like by eating this meat, we're like becoming pagans or worshiping pagan gods. We're just getting some high quality cuts at some low prices, man. And doesn't God want us to be good stewards of our, of our money? Of course he does. So this was a hotly debated issue amongst the early Christians. It was so hotly debated, in fact, that it was part of the discussion that led to the first church council, which was held in Jerusalem. And you can read about it in the book of Acts chapter 15. This was a gathering of the apostles, early church leaders, and they got together to discuss how the church should respond to some very contentious issues of that day. 
And specifically, the reason for this was because Christianity was spreading beyond the Jewish world where it had originated, where it had begun. And it was spreading, and more and more Gentiles or non-Jewish people were coming to faith in Jesus and wanting to follow him, which was good. That's exactly what Jesus had told them to do, go and preach the, the gospel to all the nations, to everywhere. It was good that the gospel was spreading and more people were becoming believers, but it also created some big questions. Like, what exactly must you do in order to become a Christian? Like, what are the requirements? Is it enough to just believe in Jesus, period? Or do you also need to be circumcised? Do you need to follow the Old Testament laws that pertain to foods that you could eat or couldn't eat? Or was that just for the Jews? And so some of the Christians said yes. Some of the Christians said no. And so the leaders of the early church got together in Jerusalem to discuss this and come to an official decision. And here was their official decision. It's found in Acts chapter 15. They wrote a letter to new believers, and they said, here's our position, here's our official decision. He said, for it has seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. <laughs> yeah. In other words, new Christians would not be required to be circumcised. They would not be required to keep the Old Testament food laws. But the apostles did ask that they avoid food sacrificed to idols, blood, and food that had been strangled, and also sexual immorality. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Whereas sexual immorality was to be avoided because it's a sin, as Paul talked about in chapter 6, uh, the food items on this list were forbidden out of consideration for the convictions of other Christians who believed that to do these things or to eat these foods was wrong. Now, maybe you might say, well, I don't like that at all because the apostles, here they are making rules that aren't from the Bible. They're making rules and saying you shouldn't do something that the Bible doesn't say is a sin if you do it. Now, listen, the reason the apostles did this, though, is because they look and they say, Hey, listen, nobody needs to be eating blood. That's like extracurricular activity. You don't need to eat blood, okay? You also don't need to eat meat sacrificed to idols. You can, there, but there are other markets you don't need to. In other words, this is a concession that Christians can make for the sake of peace and unity in the body of Christ. And so at some point during his time in Corinth, the year and a half that Paul spent in Corinth starting that church, pastoring that church, this would have come up because this letter was written before Paul went to Corinth. And so at some point during his time there, Paul's talking to these new believers in Corinth and he tells them, hey guys, as Christians, we don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, okay? And they were like, what? This is going to be a change in their lifestyle. This is where they ate lunch every day. This is where they bought their food on their way home. And so what seems to have happened is that somewhere along the way, some of the Christians in Corinth began to push back against this rule. And apparently some of them have written to Paul saying, hang on a second, Paul. Why can't we eat meat sacrificed to idols? If an idol is just a statue to a God that doesn't even exist, and even, even Jesus himself said that the food you eat isn't what makes you pure or impure before God, then isn't this rule 
about not eating meat sacrificed to idols? Isn't this just legalism? And here in this chapter, Paul is going to answer that question, and he's going to defend why this rule should be followed to not eat meat sacrificed to idols, even though it wouldn't technically be a sin to do so. And the reason Paul's going to give them is this. Because choosing not to eat that meat, it's a very small sacrifice, but it is an act of love which promotes unity. And by doing so, you're saying, I care more about the relationship and I care more about my witness as a follower of Jesus than I do about saving a couple bucks on my grocery bill. So, but before Paul gets into talking about food, notice this. First, he's going to lay a foundation for the role of knowledge and the role of love in the Christian life. Look at what it says at the end of verse 1. For we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Listen, how many of you have ever been around somebody who was really smart, but you hated being around them because they always made you feel stupid? That's a terrible feeling, isn't it? I've been around those people before. On the other hand, I'll tell you this, the smartest person I know, like he's legit smart, much higher IQ than me, he has never made me feel stupid, ever, even though he's much smarter than me. The, the question Paul gives us is this, what is more important to you, puffing yourself up, stroking your own ego, or building others up? What's more important? Has Jesus called you to be the smartest person in the room, or has Jesus called you to love others and build others up? You can use knowledge to love and serve others, but if all you have is knowledge and you don't have love, then you've completely missed the point altogether, and you're just puffing yourself up like a balloon. You're full of hot air. Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now this is important because what Paul's saying here, think about it. He's saying this, how does God use his knowledge? Right? Maybe we should use knowledge in the same way that God uses knowledge because God, he knows a lot of stuff. How does he use his knowledge? Does God use his knowledge in order to puff himself up? Or does God use his knowledge in order to serve and love others, right? And bless people. Now think about it. God knows everything about you. He knows all of your weaknesses. He knows all of your fears. He knows all of your sins. He knows all of your secrets. But rather than using that knowledge against you, God has chosen to love you, and he uses his perfect knowledge of you in order to help you grow. In his knowledge and in his providence, he gives you exactly what you need at exactly the right time to help you become the person he's making you to be. And so just as God uses his knowledge as a way of building and lovingly building up others, our actions towards other people ought to be driven in the same way by love, right? So we're imitating God in this. He uses his knowledge to build up. And so we too are to use our knowledge, not just to stroke our own egos and puff ourselves up, but to serve and build up others. And this brings us to the second part of our sentence for today. Knowledge can be used to hurt or to help. And God's love for us compels us to a higher calling than just being right. God's love for us compels us to a higher calling than just being right. Paul says in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that, quote, there is no one, uh, there's no God but one. Notice these statements are in quotations. That's because Paul is responding 
to exact things that the Corinthian Christians had written him. It's kind of like when you respond to somebody's email and you might copy in quotes from what they said in their original email in your reply. Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods or lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So the Corinthian Christians who were advocating for eating meat sacrificed to idols, uh, their argument was, listen, we all know that there's only one God, and it's the Lord. The, these other so-called gods that people worship in place of God, they aren't actually gods, right? Like, they don't actually exist. They're myths. They're fairy tales. They're made up. There's nothing really there, and therefore, those gods have no power. So why are people afraid of them? And why should we have to pander to, the la to other people's lack of understanding about this? And Paul says, you know what? You're right, if you go up on Mount Olympus, there are no gods there. Satan, in, in, interestingly, in the Bible is called the god of this world, but that doesn't mean that Satan is actually a god. It just means that people follow him instead of following God. There are many things which we, even as modern people, worship in place of God. We call them counterfeit gods, success and fulfillment and power, etc., but there's only one true, actual God. So Paul's agreeing with the Corinthians that idols are nothing, and that we don't need to be afraid of them, and we don't need to be worried that meat sacrificed to idols will defile us or hurt us spiritually in some way. And so we say, okay, cool. So does that mean that we're good to go and eat meat sacrificed to idols? And Paul says, still no, and here's why. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. Right? So Paul says, you're right, but you know what else? Not everybody else knows that. Not everybody else gets it. They're not there yet. And he says this, some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So Paul's like, you and me, we get it. We know that an idol is nothing. But there are other Christians out there who, because of past association with paganism, they're bothered by the idea of eating food sacrificed to idols. It bothers their conscience. Their conscience tells them that it is wrong for them to do so. Now, here's something that people often ask about, something that people often wonder. They wonder and they ask, what is the relationship between your conscience and the Holy Spirit? Is your conscience just another word for, for the Holy Spirit? Is it the same thing? Well, the answer is no. Your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit sometimes uses your conscience. The Bible talks about your conscience, right? Here's the thing, though. In some cases, like in this one, for example, your conscience can be wrong. Your conscience can mislead you. In the book of Titus, it talks about how your conscience can be defiled. In 1 Timothy, Paul talks about having a seared conscience, right, which no longer feels the way that it should. So it's possible that your conscience could tell you that something is wrong when it's not actually wrong. On the other hand, it's also possible for you to do something and it doesn't trigger your conscience at all, and yet it's wrong in God's eyes, right? Like you feel fine about doing it, and yet God says, no, 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 that's not okay, even though you feel fine about doing it. So Paul here is talking about Christians whose consciences tell them that it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, those people's conscience is weak, and it's leading them 
to a false conclusion. And yet, Paul says, even though they're wrong and you're right, there's something more important than being right. What's more important than being right? Well, Paul says, what's more important than being right is thinking through how your actions will impact and affect others. Will your actions help them or will your actions hurt them? Will your actions encourage them in the way of Jesus? Or will your actions potentially confuse them or trip them up? Look at what Paul says next in verses 8 and 9. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So look, Paul says, we aren't doing this for ourselves. We're not doing this for our own sakes. You know who we're doing this for? We're doing this not for ourselves. We're doing it for the sake of others. Earlier in chapter 6, here in 1 Corinthians, do you remember that Paul gave us some questions that we should ask when we're considering whether or not we should do something? Here's what he said. He said, all things may be lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things may be lawful, but some things will bring me into bondage. They'll make me a slave. So when we're making a decision, what Paul's saying is, we have a list of questions that we kind of work through. Should I do something or should I not do something? Number one, I ask, is it legal and is it biblical? Is it legal and is it biblical? That's the first question I ask. Second question I want to ask is, okay, even if it's not illegal, is it helpful? Next one is, is it enslaving? But I want you to see this here in 1 Corinthians 8. It's as if Paul gives us one more question to add to that list, which is this. How will this action impact and affect other people? You see, one of the big themes of this letter is that Paul wants to help the Corinthian Christians realize that in Christ, they have a higher calling than merely just living for themselves, merely just living for their own whims and pleasures and desires. Friends, I want you to know this. I want this to be characteristic of our church, that we are people who understand that God has a higher calling for us as people, a bigger purpose for our lives than that we would merely just live to please ourselves. See, Paul desperately wanted the Corinthians to understand this because a lot of the problems that they were facing in their church as we go through them, you'll notice this. A lot of these problems stemmed from the fact that they were failing to realize that God had a higher calling for their lives than just simply that they would seek their own pleasure and fulfillment and enjoyment. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's going to write to them, and he says this phrase. I love this phrase. It's so compelling, right? Because look at what it says. For the love of Christ compels us. Do you get what that means? It means that when you really understand how much God loves you, it's like it grabs you by the collar and looks you in the eyes and gets your attention. The love of Christ compels us. Why? Because we're convinced that one died, Jesus died, and therefore all died. We have died along with him, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for them died and was raised again. Now think about it. How did Jesus love us? If this love of Christ compels us, how did he love us? What is his love for us? He loved us, think about it, by giving up his rights and privileges, didn't he? He gave up his place in heaven to come to earth. He did something he didn't have to do for our sakes. Think about it. We were the ones who were wrong, and yet he came in order to make us right with God. 
to give us his righteousness as a gift to make us right with God. He gave up his heavenly throne in order to take our sins upon himself on the cross. He gave up the comforts of heaven to sacrifice himself for us. This is the love that compels us. And what it compels us to do is to love other people in the way that Jesus loved us. Rather than living for ourselves, in other words, we now live for a higher calling, for a bigger purpose than just what, what, what do I want to do? So rather than just living on the level of well, what do I want, right? I want to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't tell me I can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Instead, my actions are driven by a higher calling. How can I live in a way that builds up the kingdom of God? How can I live in a way that helps other people take their next step with Jesus so they can carry on in that journey of becoming who God wants them to be? How can I grow in my relationship with God and help others experience joy and freedom in Jesus? How can I carry out the work of God in the world through my life? See, when you have that sense, that understanding of this higher calling, you can easily say, hey, you know what? If eating certain things causes my brother to stumble, as Paul says in verse 13, then I'll never eat it again. That's how much I care about my brother and how much I'm willing to lay down myself just like Jesus laid down himself for me. If that's what it comes to, I'll never eat meat again. Think about it like this. With everything that's going on in the world right now, you know what's going on, right? All the stuff. With everything that's going on in the world right now, what would it look like for you to live with a sense of a higher calling that comes from being compelled by the love of Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, it says that one day the Pharisees came to Jesus and they criticized his disciples for not washing their hands before they ate a meal. Now, I think about it, that's pretty gross, right? I'd probably criticize the disciples for doing that too. But my reason for criticizing them would be different than the reason the Pharisees criticized them. I just criticize them because... That's gross, bro. But in Jewish tradition, the reason you were supposed to wash your hands before you ate was so that you wouldn't defile yourself spiritually. Because, you know, you're out there in the world and you might have accidentally come in contact with or touched something that was unclean. And the uncleanness from, would transfer from your hands to your food. And if you ate it, then you would get that clean, uncleanness inside of you. And that's not good because you can wash your hands, but how do you wash the inside of you? And so they criticized Jesus' disciples. They said, you don't keep the traditions of the elders by washing your hands. And Jesus responded, and this is what he said. Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And his disciples were like, hang on a second. Could you repeat that? Could you explain it? We're not sure we're picking up what you're putting down. And so Jesus explained it. And he said this, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart that defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil, thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It all begins in the heart. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anybody. What Jesus is saying is that our spiritual problem is not with our hands, it's with our hearts. 
Our real, true, ultimate problem is not with our hands. It's with our hearts. It's not what you eat that defiles you. It's the fact that you already are defiled at the very core of your being in your heart of hearts. But that's kind of a problem, don't you think? Because it's pretty easy to wash your hands or to eat clean food. But how are you going to wash your heart? The problem is you can't. And to make it even worse, he's not even talking about a, a physical heart muscle. He's using the word heart in the sense of the core, the essence of your being, who you are at your very core and essence, what makes you you. But God made a promise through the prophet Ezekiel. He said that one day I'm going to come to you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And the Bible tells us that that promise was fulfilled in Jesus because when you put your faith in Jesus, God gives you a clean heart. He gives you a clean heart. And maybe you're here today and you need God to cleanse your heart. You know that there's some stuff in there that needs to be cleansed, that you need to be cleansed of. I want to tell you this. Do you realize you can receive a clean heart today? by putting your faith in Jesus. You can have your heart cleansed today by putting your faith in Jesus, whether it's for the first time or for the 500th time. To put your faith in Jesus, it means to trust in and cling to and rely on Jesus and what he did for you and what he wants to do in your life every day from here on out. And when you put your faith in him, look at what it says in 1 Peter 1 verse 22 says this, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, he says, the next thing to do is this, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Friends, that's the higher calling that we have in Jesus, to love one another earnestly, having been cleansed, now to love one another earnestly and to carry out God's mission in the world that he's placed upon your life. And I want to encourage you to walk in that higher calling this week. Amen? Listen, knowledge can be used to hurt or to help, and God's love for us compels us to a higher calling than just being right. Please stand with me, and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.